Welcome to Hearing Voices. I'm Erica Heilman. Our show today is Prisoners of War, the Battle of the Bulge. In 2003, just at the onset of the Iraqi War, my friend Greg Sherrow and I started a series of interviews with Vermont veterans who had fought in World War II. A handful of these men were captured during one of the bloodiest battles of the war, the Battle of the Bulge. And more than 50 years later, these men still were haunted daily by their memories of this time. It was December of 1944, and Adolf Hitler launched a surprise attack against the Allied troops who were heading east toward Germany, through Belgium and northern France. Hitler hoped that this massive assault would prove so demoralizing that the Allies would seek a separate peace, leaving only the Russian army on the Eastern Front. The German name for this counteroffensive was Operation Watch on the Rhine. Americans called it the Battle of the Bulge. 19,000 Americans were killed in this battle. About the same number were taken prisoner. This is a story of four young soldiers from Vermont who were captured in that battle and sent to German prison camps for the remainder of the war. Here is their story. We were told that you're going to be relieving the 2nd Division and they're going to leave their howitzers in place, and they're going to leave their huts in place and so forth. You're going to, they're going to go some other place and you guys are going to occupy their area. And aren't you lucky because this is a very, very quiet sector for uh, people's first encounter in battle. It's perfect because it's uh, occasionally some harassing fire like uh, the Germans will send some shells over on you guys occasionally, and but nothing, nothing real bad. Very, very quiet, very quiet sector, and it was going, getting near Christmas, and we were kind of, we were kind of happy about, happy about that, but it turned out to be <laughs> anything but a, but a quiet sector. Lo and behold, as we're walking up, the other platoon from the second division is coming down. They're carrying everything all their tripods, mortar bases, the whole bit, and ours are all way back, 10 miles back in the woods. So we got up on the front line with nothing to to fight with. One bandolier of rifle ammunition, machine gun barrels, and with no base plate or for the mortars, nothing. During the night, we were able to hear the um, very distinctive clickety clackety of the army of army tanks and we knew something was going on out there and it sounded like it was getting closer and closer and then that uh, shells started coming in many wounded many many killed and we were able to see uh, not only tanks but but uh, foot foot soldiers and uh, then the command came to one of us at a time get back to the battery battery position where we could get into foxholes and do a better job of uh, maybe defending the position. And um, so my turn came, and uh, a combination of running and then falling on the ground and, and keep going on your knees and your, and your, and your elbows and uh, a whole lot of mortar fire coming in. Never, never got a chance to, never got a chance to use a knife on anyone or, or, or a bayonet. But it was, it was that, it was that close. When we were going up, I could hear tanks to our right, and I told the lieutenant, I says, uh, "Them are German tanks, and they're going past us." And he, and I had the men right there with me, my, my outfit. He said, "Shut your damn mouth." He said. What are you trying to do, scare the men? I said, Lieutenant, call headquarters, battalion headquarters, and let them know what's happening. I said, they're going to get cut off down there in the Marguerite. Well, he wouldn't do it. So they did. They cut them off. And, uh, and the rest of the team that was in Marguerite almost got wiped out. All of a sudden, we were told to pull back to hold the line 
and there we have uh, fighting behind us. You know, we're saying to South, how did they get there? They didn't break through the line to get there. They were already there. So it was really a mass confusion. It was the worst screwed-up mess I ever saw. It just, just was about blowing us apart. During the firefight, my platoon leader and my platoon sergeant took off. And I was the ranking NCO, and so I had to take the platoon over. And I knew that we couldn't stay there long. So I formed the men up, and we started back north towards uh, our other team up in Noville. So I just kept the men going up a valley, like, in the thick woods, and then we got almost into Noville on a high ridge. It was like an amphitheater, a big valley like, and uh, we almost got there, which just, we didn't make it. We got into a firefight, and I had two men wounded, and, and we were out of ammunition. And we hadn't eaten nothing since the 19th, and that was the 21st, and men were getting tired and hungry, and, and uh, we didn't have no ammunition to fight with. So we hollered, Kamerad. <laughs> we gave up. We should probably shouldn't have. We should have been like the Colonel, oh, what was the name of Alamo there? We should have been him. But I didn't feel like sacrificing my men for, because uh, there was no use to. I mean, we didn't have nothing to fight with. What were we going to fight with? Our fist? against all those machine guns and grenades and everything. So I wanted to save my men. That, my men come first. Out of ammunition, we were surrounded in the woods, and cut, we were just cut off into some segments. Some of the segments made it into Bastogne, and some did not. And uh, I was part of the group that did not. And so on uh, December 20th, uh, 1944, we were prisoners of war. The sergeant came out of the woods under a white flag. I didn't make the decision. I don't know if it was a decision I would have made or not. But uh, at any rate, uh, we came, uh, the Germans were expecting us. I was against it. I didn't want to stop, and uh, and I remember when the order came down to s destroy our weapons, in other words, smash them, whatever you could do to them, and I carried an M1 rifle, and I remember, they, I, like to this day, I think it's one of the saddest times in my life, it seemed like, because, you know, everything I'd gone through since I joined the Army, and, and I was on a the ship that sank in the Pacific before that, you know, and I'd lived through this and that, and all the maneuvers and the hard work, and to think it ended up like that. And so when I was smashing my rifle against a big tree, I can recall, I remember, the tears were rolling down my cheeks, and I, you know, it was like I was a baby, but it, it just, it, I just couldn't believe it. You're listening to Prisoners of War, The Battle of the Bulge, on Hearing Voices. Ray Gregan and he and I stuck pretty close together. Uh, we were about all that each other had, and we ended up into a bombed-out house in the basement of this house, and uh, not knowing what else we were going, what else we were going to do. We did not have any ammunition left, and why we didn't throw the rifle down, I'll, I'll never know. But we kept 
hold of the rifles and got inside of this inside of this building and the tanks were all over the place and the troops German troops all over the place so we smashed our rifles the best we could against the wall of the uh, against the wall of the cellar and uh, the next uh, sequence of events was he heard his pretty pretty loud voice hello and we didn't say hello <laughs> hello back it was nice and dark under the, where we were and uh, <clears throat> anyway the next thing that happened a burst of burst of uh, fire from a burp gun <clears throat> which I guess fires more rapidly than a, than a machine gun and this guy was spraying the wall of this cellar where we were so that incentivized us to say hello <laughs> very 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 quickly uh, I was pretty young pretty young I mean, by that time I guess I must have been 19 could have been 20 uh, one of the things that has always stayed with me this single German soldier was younger than I was and here he was uh, capturing two guys and he was a very very young kid and appeared like he was pretty scared very very scared so he uh, motioned us out and we we certainly obeyed joined a group of others POWs that were that were being assembled went through the searches and the first things they took was their guns knives the second thing they took was our overshoes. They really liked those overshoes we were, we were we were wearing. If you didn't give them the overshoes, then your mom would collect that ten thousand dollars worth of insurance. I did not see a person shot, but I heard the shot and saw the person fall. And the word was that he had refused to give the German guard his uh, his overshoes. Catholic rosary that my mom had given me. Took it out of my pocket as as to empty your pockets or whatever the word was. We couldn't understand them. They couldn't understand us. They did a lot of gesturing and so forth. And uh, got the rosary out and he tore it apart. Uh, Spit (coughs) spit on it. Tore it apart and spit on it again and ground it in the snow like that. <clears throat> and uh, did the same thing to a little prayer book that I had that I had. And uh, then he started going through the photographs that I had and I was able to understand uh, he'd point and I would say mother, yeah, yeah mother <laughs> and father and uh, he would uh, tear them up. And then uh, got to, I said, girlfriend, yeah, frall, frall, frallen, fraline, or something like that. And he let me keep that. And a strange, strange, strange guy. This wasn't the young kid that appeared s- scared. It was a, uh, some of them were SS, SS troopers who uh, <clears throat> were pretty heartless people. They started to ask some questions to them, some of them privates. And I hollered, name, rank, and serial number. And this guy, this sergeant come up with a rifle. And he rammed away. He hit me in the side of the face. Loosened up my teeth. And, uh, the men knew what I said. Anyways, they, when they were interrogated, that's all they gave them was name, rank, and serial number. They tried everything, uh, interrogation. They took me into this major, and he interrogated me and asked me all kinds of questions. And I just kept saying name, rank, my name, rank, and serial number. And he was getting peeved, a little bit peeved. And pretty soon he says, uh, he said something to a guy that was sitting there. And the guy went out, and he come back in, and he had a great big plate full of them. Oh, best-looking food there was, though. And we were... We were hungry. I know we were. All of us. If they'd 
played the same trick to the other guys. They looked at it and probably drooled. And uh, he says, you help me, and I take good care of you. I said, yep, to myself. And then he started asking questions again, and I said, name, rank, and serial number. He got peed, and he picked up the plate and dumped it right in his waste paper basket. <laughs> and then he says, told the guy, he said, take me back to where I come from, my pen. I ended up in a schoolhouse in a Belgian town, and uh, the man who did the interrogation was actually a sergeant, and he put on kind of an act, you know, sort of a tough Nazi. The only, the only time I ever saw a German that uh, was uh, like those in the movies, and he was putting on an act, because I saw him, you know, elsewhere, you know, and he was quite different. Uh, I'm the Germans did of course brutal things as we know I'm not saying that they uh, they didn't and um, our treatment as prisoners of war was hellish because we didn't have enough to eat and uh, conditions were very very crowded but uh, as individuals they were quite unlike they have been depicted in the movies Christmas Day, it cleared up, just like it is now. Beautiful sky, only it was cold, and the snow was deep. And uh, we come across this big bridge into open field, open uh, country, uh, farm country. And this German officer was in a, a VW, Volkswagen, bug. And uh, he was stuck up in the yard, and he couldn't get out. And he was a high-ranking officer. And uh, the guards, the German guards, made some of us go down and push him up to the main road. Well, meantime, there's we, way above us was a uh, squadron of P-47s, our planes. And when they saw us marching and they seen us push that car out, they must have thought we were Germans, you know. So they come down and they started dropping anti-personnel bombs and strafing us with machine guns. So then they just got us together and started marching us east. We started walking into Germany. We got into one of these long, long lines spreading all the way across Western Germany. I remember they came around and gave us, I'll never forget that, was a hunk of black bread. And I think we had... It was called uh, probably a butter, but it didn't taste like, taste like grease. I, I took a bite of it, you know, and it was really sour, terrible. But, uh, but I remember at the time, I, I won't say, but I said, before I eat this, that's, <laughs> I'll die. But I'll tell you later on, I wish I had that hunk of bread that I threw away. Seventy-two of us on this railroad uh, boxcar that was designed for forty people or eight horses, and uh, they were just keep pushing us into the into this boxcar, even though there was no more room and uh, uh, no lights, no nothing, no bathroom facilities, uh, nothing. Uh, I think it was about five days was my longest period on one of the damn things. And we 
licked uh, frost off on the inside of the boxcar for moisture. Some guys smarter than we were were able to get some of the <laughs> some of the German kids to throw snowballs at them, and they used that for for moisture when they would occasionally they would open up the door, not let us out or anything, but just open the door. Christmas Eve, we were singing Christmas carols to keep each other's spirits up. One of the songs is "I'll Be Home for Christmas." We tried that one, but we couldn't quite get couldn't quite get through it. Kind of throat constricted and so forth. But we sang all the rest of them, all the rest of them, and that seemed to seemed to somehow help. And during one of the lulls, all of a sudden, a voice came out of nowhere with a Vermont twang even worse than mine. Is there anybody from Vermont on this car? And gee, that was that was just like something from heaven to, to hear that. And I don't know what I said when I said, yeah, Jesus, yeah. I'm Cliff Austin, I live in Virginia, so I used to live in Virginia. And he said, my name is Howard Bailey and I live in Morrisville. So no lights on, but somehow everybody didn't mind if we stepped on their toes and he held his hand up in the air and I kept feeling for a hand that was up in the air and finally got a hold got a hold of him and we talked I guess all night long and it's, I'll never forget how comforting it seemed just that little bit of connection didn't know each other but we were both from this tiny state of Vermont Hearing Voices will be back in just a minute. We'll find out what happened to these men when they got to the prison camps and what happened after their release. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back. This is Hearing Voices. You're listening to Prisoners of War, the Battle of the Bulge. I tried to act so brave, you know, but inside of me... I was just churning. But I tried to act for my men so that they'd, you know, keep their courage. But I was scared. But I I tried to control it for their sake. When one boy was sick, and this SS sergeant, he had charge of us all. And uh, the boy couldn't get up. He was so sick. And the sergeant kept after him yelling at him, and the boy just couldn't get out, and he took his Luger out and just shot the boy right in the bin, and they just carried him out. I, I learned to keep my mouth shut and keep my nose clean and, and watch and listen and not say nothing. That's what the first thing you'll do, you know, you'll learn. Because if you talk, you never know who's next to you that was planted there, you know. I, I, I've seen some of the guys because they always had a pack of cigarettes in their pocket. And we never had cigarettes. We'd get a butt that flipped, the Germans would flip at us and we'd pick up a butt or something. But if you saw somebody with a pack of cigarettes, you knew that they were getting them cigarettes from some place for something.
It seemed to me like a melting pot of the whole world, all kinds of nationalities there. Stalag 4B, once each day we were allowed to intermingle with the Russians and with the uh, British, I recall, and others that didn't know it. And it was almost like a like a big uh, flea market or something. You, If you had anything at all that you wanted to trade for something to eat, you'd hold it up with a wristwatch, a ring, or uh, a cigarette. Man, cigarettes, you could have bought our way right out of the whole country if we'd have had a carton of cigarettes. The black bread was anywhere from 30 to 50% sawdust for a filler. And there's, there's not much nourishment in sawdust. So we kept losing, losing, losing. And, and, and when they made us work on the railroad, we were so weak it took more people to carry a tie or a rail than, than you had room enough to move. Because we're so weak, we couldn't pick up nothing. It would take about half to three-quarters of an hour to cut the loaf of bread. It was like a big ceremony. You know, we'd all be sitting up on the top bunk, and the bread was there, and he would take the knife and scratch, try to divide it up, and then somebody would say, well, that slice is bigger than this. You know, it was just something to, like, pass the time. You know, not so much for greed, but... Of course, you had 24 hours a day, you know, to do nothing and talk about food and, you know, what you were going to have if you ever got back home. You dream about food at night, and uh, it's a it's a profound experience, like thirst. And I can't describe it to you, except that uh, it's on your mind all the time. It's a real torment. Legs would swell, hands would swell, arms would start to swell, and if your swelling would get anywhere in the trunk of your body, you were dead meat <laughs> then. And that happened to quite a number of the guys. I picked up stuff and eat. It would shut you and make you vomit. But I knew that if I didn't, I was going to die, you know. I even dug out potato peelings out of a manure pile and then took them in the place and everybody had a little fire going and we'd take a tin can, put the potato peelings in and kind of heat them up, you know, and eat them. And they come right off in a stinking manure pile. Nobody knows what starving to death is unless you were starving. Because you say, oh, I wouldn't eat that for nothing. You will. Women was nothing on your mind. Nobody ever thought of women because your body wouldn't, wasn't up to it anyway. Cigarettes and food is all you thought about. Louis Baca and myself uh, had never known each other, but we kind of clung together on the march and on the boxcars and so forth. And uh, Louis and I <clears throat> had not eaten in a couple, at least a couple of days we got into the uh, British barracks, and the British were old-timers at this business. Some of them had been captured way back since Gun- Dunkirk, and uh, on their way out, it was nice and warm in there, and they were uh, they were in pretty good shape, these guys, because they'd been receiving parcels from home and so forth. And Louie and I had... had uh, Worn out our welcome, we had, we had an idea, and we were on our way out, and there was a garbage pail at the entrance exit of their building, and Louie and I were eating their uh, <clears throat> potato peelings from the from the garbage pail, and a British guy came out and knocked the potato peelings out of our hands and said, don't ever let these Germans see you acting like animals and that's what you're acting like right here don't ever let them see you doing that so uh, Louis said but we're hungry and we haven't eaten in a couple of days I know you haven't but don't ever let them catch you doing doing anything like that 
man can turn into an animal because I saw it happen. Like they, they'd steal from each other if they had anything. Or if a German, a German would do it on purpose and he'd flip a cigarette. And those guys would dive onto that cigarette and they'd get into fights. And actually, they didn't have much strength, but enough to, you know, it hurts each other. And they'd fight and fight over a cigarette butt. I had one of my men, he, he just gave up. He was from a rich family and he never wanted for nothing. But he didn't have enough hard time in him to cope with it. He'd rather die is to, is to cope with it. And I'd go out on work details and I'd steal. Uh, every chance I got, I'd steal something that I could get my hands on and I'd bring it back to him. I figured maybe that enticed him to eat, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't. I took a chance of getting shot for stealing because if they ever catch you with something that you're not supposed to have, they don't ask no question. They just push you to the side and shoot you. So, but no matter what I did, didn't I tried to make him mad. I called him a coward, and I did everything to him to make him, you know, want to fight back. But it didn't work. He just died. He was a good kid, too. Three of our guys attempted an escape. They were caught within a mile of where we were held, roasting potatoes of all things down in a valley. And each one of them had been shot directly in the back of the head, which appeared to us that it was at close range. Bodies were brought back, left at the camp gate, uh, for three days, I guess it was, with a sort of a message to us as this is what happens if you try to try to escape. And it was raining, even though it was winter time. It was it was raining, and I was one of the guys that went out and tried to cover the body. Kept trying to cover the bodies up out of out of respect, and uh, I got roughed up pretty badly for that. listening to Prisoners of War, The Battle of the Bulge, on Hearing Voices. We could hear the artillery in the distance, and, and word came down through... Eisenhower or whatever, the French brought it in. It was to stay safe, stay sane. We heard that they were going to move us out, and we didn't want to get on the road. So when it came our turn to go, they hollered us. Of course, we all just we were falling out, and we are laying in the mud, and the guards were coming along, and they were poking us with their bayonet. In German, I don't know, they were hollering at us to get up. And we just were lying there. And uh, so finally, the colonel that was in charge of the POW camp, he said, evidently, he said, back to the barracks. That night, they all left. We, with a few good fellows, went up into the barracks where the Germans were, and they had some rifles and things there, and we, we had armed guards of our own and let the Americans out of the area we were in. It was fenced in. And the Russians, and they were going into town, they were raping women, stealing sheep, and they had them out in, the, in that fenced-in area. They were, they were trying to cook them with their wool on them and everything. Oh, geez, it was terrible. So we did that, and that afternoon, a tank from the 7th Armored came right through the gate at the uh, prison. 
But one thing, uh, you know, and I get really aggravated with when I see these people that want to burn the flag and do those things. And all I could say to them, if they, I could talk to them, I just would like to have you be in a POW camp starving and see how you'd feel when the tank came through the front gate with the American flag flying. Then you would know what a flag means. Go through that. The tears will run down your cheeks and your heart will race and you, you never would have a feeling like that in your life. Never, never. One little boy, a young boy, he run to the gate and the tank, British tank, come through and knock the gate down and then another tank behind him come and, and the guy, the tank commander was on top. He reached down and got a case of of uh, rations that they had and he took that case and he threw it down to that boy. They found that boy dead. They say his stomach wasn't fit to take hard food and he just guzzled so much it just killed him. It's like a a drunk juzzling a fifth of liquor down him and kill him. That's the way that food did to that poor little boy. And the and the officers told us that don't give or he told his men, don't give these prisoners nothing. They gave us uh hot tea and crumpets to start with. And uh, we said, We don't want nothing like that. We want food. But they wouldn't give it because they knew what was the best for us? We were gotten out of Germany by plane. I had my first plane ride. The railroads were all wrecked, you see. And we landed in America on June 21st, 1945, went to Fort Sheridan, Illinois. And at that moment, I didn't know where my, whether my parents were alive or dead. Or even where they lived, because they were going to move. And so I simply, in fear and trepidation, picked up the phone and heard my mother's voice. I arrived here in Virginia, got off on the bus and kissed the pavement there in front of what is now O'Brien's hair salon. Walked down Maple Street and waved to Clessy Hawkins who's the first person I saw, and continued on up Green Street, up here to the corner with my barracks bag slung over my slung over my shoulder. I walked into the house. My mom and dad were the only ones that were that were there. But anyway, a whole lot of whole lot of hugging and kissing went on. Thank God. And I I think we stayed up most of the night just just talking, but my mom and dad were <clears throat> very considerate, and they were bringing me up to date instead of me bringing them up to date. Up to date. I, when I got back to Camp Lucky Strike, they took me into a, a major that was an intelligence officer, and I went through a debriefing with him. And after I got through, it took four hours. And after I got done, he says, You know, Sergeant? I said, What's that? He says, You're a disgrace to your uniform in your country for getting yourself captured and your men. So, I give up on everything after that. I, I just, uh, that was a hell of a blow, you know? I was like, he took a, I wouldn't have hurt so bad if he took a bayonet and stuck right through me. But that son of a sea crook, if I could if I could ever met him after that, I'd let him find out what war was all about. He probably never left that desk. He didn't know what war was, I bet. Or he wouldn't have never made that statement. I was so happy. You don't, you don't know the feeling after coming out of prison camp, uh, and and uh, how beautiful it felt. Everybody, I loved everybody. The seventh of May, when the end of the war came, I was in a, a, a Belgian town, and those people were, it was hugging, and we we all, you know, we were just so happy. We loved everybody, 
And then I get the camp lucky strike, and that guy dropped me down, you know. That was a heck of a feeling. Something about my face bothered me also. <clears throat> Some of the guys have called it that, that scared POW look. It's a haunting, vacant look in a guy's eyes. It looks like a person is helpless, hopeless. First time I saw myself in a mirror, I, I broke down crying. I never told anyone. At, you know, home or my mother, of course, knew. But I mean, even I never even told my friends about anything. No. I was ashamed. It was, you know, it was like I gave up and I shouldn't have. I should have fought till I died, I guess, or something. I mean, I didn't want people to think I was a, like a coward and I didn't fight. Even my wife didn't know. Even after I got I never told her anything. One of my men that got wounded, he called me, and the company commander said, you got a phone call, Sarge. And I went in, and, I, and he spoke to me, and I guess I did. I turned white, because I figured he died you know, in prison camp, because he was shot up pretty bad. But he didn't. He lived in his station down in Fort Knox, too. So we got together, and uh, we went up to his place in West Virginia. And I met his cousin, and later on I married her. And uh, I lived down in Kentucky, or in West Virginia, 10 years before I come back here to live. I worked in the coal mines down there. But for 10 years working on those coal mines, I every time I got out, I was drunk. I spent all my money for drinks. When you're high or half drunk or drunk, uh, you don't pay no attention to much, you know? And uh, for 10 years after I got out of the guards, I was nothing but a drunk. And it took 10 years for me to wake up and get back to my senses. But I guess, I mean, we all went through the same stuff except, you know, the prison camp. None of them were in prison camp, but they were, some of them were wounded and they had stories to tell too to their kids and their family. But I didn't have no stories to tell. I just kept my mouth shut and drank and drank. That was my crutch, liquor. I was just a plain hobo drunk. You're listening to Prisoners of War, the Battle of the Bulge, on Hearing Voices. There would be times when I would just disappear off on the job, walk out into the warehouse wanting to be alone, sit down and cry, <clears throat> shake like a leaf. You're, you're wondering all the time, should I have done that? Couldn't I have done better or... Couldn't I stay there like the Alamo and let it all end? Was I a coward for surrendering and surrendering my men? Was that guy right? You know, you, you think about all these things. I could sit out there on the porch and get to thinking back, you know, just thinking about it. I'll go to bed at night and I'll have these flashbacks and nightmares. I talked to men that when we was going to these reunions, 
and talking with them guys, a lot of times they can, you know, they can help you. And I, that's why I like to visit with them when I, when I had the chance. Now Brax down there, he's in terrible shape. He just kind of shuffles along and really needs somebody to kind of put his hand on his his belt, you know, as he walks and everything, and he gets in a wheelchair. So when I met him down there in Connecticut, which I went down there really for, to go to the gambling, but really to go to see him, it was an easy way to go, and they picked me up. And he took, he said, let's go over to the to the gambling place. He wanted to show me around. And he got the wheelchair out, and I pushed him all around in that place. It felt so good. Like, you know, like we're, well, you might say blood brothers or, it's entirely different than just knowing someone and, you know, yeah, it's, uh, and it'll never go away, I'm sure. Not till we're all gone. No. The guy that I was born and brought up with <clears throat> in Virginia was in the 8th Air Force, I guess, and I hadn't seen him in quite some time. Walked into the, into the McDonald's, uh, got a couple of cups of coffee, and we're walking towards our table, and I recognized this guy there with his wife, and uh, glad to see him and introduced Louie to him. I mentioned Louie and I were together in a... In a uh, slave labor camp in occupied Poland during World War II and this guy came back at me just like that he says well I wouldn't brag about that and uh, I walked out of the place <clears throat> well my friend followed me out and he said I just remembered what I said Cliff and I want to apologize I didn't mean what I said I said you said it and then I said something pretty pretty bad to him. I said, I wouldn't brag about being in the 8th Air Force and <laughs> going over Germany and dropping bombs and then being able to go back to England at night and go out with those English girls and drink that wine and sleep in a warm, clean bed. And, and that wasn't very nice of me to say that, but I... I guess I had to had to attack him because he he had hurt me pretty badly and my friend also. I was ice fishing with a good friend of mine, Fred Ringer, down at Basin Harbor Club, out on the ice in a shanty felt the need uh, to excuse myself from the fish shanty for a moment. Went out of the fish shanty, uh, and it was blowing. The snow was blowing terrible, terrible, and, and it was snowing in addition to that. But anyway, did my nature call, and then in the distance I spotted a guy trying to run, and f then he would fall down, and then he would run, and he would fall down. He had on what appeared to be tattered clothing and, and an, an overcoat that was ripped in shreds and so on and so forth. And he kept getting closer and closer. And uh, all of a sudden I saw myself trying to run when our German guards would hustle us along with rifle butts and bayonets and a rouse, rouse, which I guess meant hurry, hurry. And then if you would fall, if you would fall down, you didn't stay down too long because you knew that if you couldn't keep up, uh, you would be shot. And uh, so I saw myself in that tattered clothing. I saw myself falling and getting up and falling and getting up. And uh, I started crying. I went inside of the shanty, and Fred said, my God, what's the matter? And I said, I gotta go home. You gotta go home now.
They kept begging me. They said, Dad, they said, well, you're getting old, and then when you die, all those things are going to be gone forever. We won't know nothing about it. So I figured, well, I'm doing this for the her and the kids. And I did. I made them each a, a story of it and put it in the folder and give it to them all. So they can, they can either take care of it or they can destroy it. up to them, but I did my part. The men whose stories we've just heard are Cliff Austin, Robert Norton, Harrison Burney, and William Buzier. This story was produced for Vermont Folklife Center Media by Greg Sherrow and me, Erica Heilman. The story was produced for Hearing Voices by Larry Massett. This is HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.